Good morning, all you eaters and drinkers out there and thinkers, because uh, we're going to be bringing you uh, some interesting ideas uh, surrounding food and drink. You're listed on the menu with Ann and Peter Haig, and um, um, we'll present to you two women who are creative, independent, um, contributing wonderful ideas and, and products, and anyhow. In very different ways. If, yeah, and we're, we're going to start with this actually fascinating book, at least it was something I was fascinated with, because I had never, ever heard of nutritional psychology, but here we have um, a, a woman who wrote a book called This Is Your Brain on Food, and I'm fascinated with that. Uh, Dr. Uma Naido, who has every degree under the sun, and she's going to talk to us about this, uh, the book and, and the, the department. And the whole field, the whole field which whole field. seems to us pretty much she invented it. Yeah, and it's involved in integrative medicine, and well, you're going to need to get this book, believe me. Let's listen uh, to the good doctor talk about it. Well, um, Dr. Uma and I do, MD, um, I never knew that there was such a field as nutritional psychiatry. Um, You have so much background, I don't even know where to start. You are a a, a Harvard-educated, board-certified psychiatrist, a trained professional chef, and a nutrition specialist and the Director of Nutritional and Lifestyle Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, that's, I don't know when you found time, but whatever you're reading, it gives you the right kind of energy to accomplish all of that, I guess. The title of your book, the title of your book is This Is Your Brain on Food. And uh, I, I mean, I just found it amazing. Let's start with what exactly is this field, nutritional psychiatry? Of course, and thank you for the question. Um, you know, nutritional psychiatry is the use of healthy whole foods and nutrients to improve your mental well-being. It does not exclude the use of medications or other forms of therapy. In fact, it is very complementary to everything else that you might be doing to improve how you are feeling emotionally. Yes, they specify that, which is a good thing, because um, people go around taking all these supplements and doing sometimes more harm than good, uh, and you don't recommend that. I feel like there is a place for supplementation, but that we cannot really supplement out of a bad diet. So it really starts with how we're eating in a whole food, healthy way, and from there, your doctor may assess you to have perhaps a deficiency or need some nutrient, in which case it's perfectly uh, appropriate to supplement. But we shouldn't start with thinking that if we take multiple supplements but are eating, you know, kind of junk foods and processed foods all the time, that that's going to balance out because it really it really doesn't. Yeah, this isn't anything like Noom, the superstar of the advertising world just now. <laughs> We, we can't find out they're so secret if we don't know anything really about Noom. <laughs> um, so, but, but you are linking nutrition and psychiatry. Um, and are you the only one that, to do this? 
So, you know, I think that the media has kindly uh, been calling me the pioneer in U.S. nutritional psychiatry. There are certainly groups who are talking about this internationally and people who are practicing this way. But my book really has been the first um, of its kind to put together the scientific evidence um, in a way to share with the public on nutritional psychiatry. And I think that uh, in, in some ways that has really uh, brought it forward, but also the fact that I co uh, that I founded and direct you know the the first clinical service at an academic teaching hospital at Harvard, but the first center of its kind in the United States. And I'm not familiar with any other hospital um, that is doing that at the moment. No, I mean I don't know of any other. And, and I'm a firm believer, by the way, in this uh, gut brain connection. You managed to explain it, though, better than most anybody who's I've read or listened to. Explain to our listeners how it could be possible for what is the gut biome and, and how is it possible for that to interact with the brain. Absolutely. You know, the missing conversation in the room, uh, we talk to our doctors or our practitioners about a family history of diabetes or some weight gain over COVID, but we're not really bringing the brain into the room. And the brain is the most important organ in the body because without the brain, the rest of us does not function, the rest of our body. So the emerging evidence in the last one to two decades has been around this connection between the gut and the brain. And it's really almost a more of an ecosystem than a one-way or a two-way sort of thing. The gut and brain um, basically arise from the exact same cells in the embryo. So these organs are linked. And then they are linked anatomically by the vagus nerve, which is our 10th cranial nerve, which runs from the brain to the gut and the gut to the brain. And I like to call that a two-way superhighway allowing for chemical messages between these two organs. It involves much more than that, but that at least helps you understand that when you eat food and it starts to get digested in your gut, the breakdown products could actually have a direct impact on your emotions because those breakdown products are all in the environment that are also going to be communicated through chemical messages to the brain as well. And that's also, a few other things, um, you know, the, about 70% of our immune system is in the gut. And, 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 and that's another reason to just be eating, especially now, a healthy whole foods diet as best we can. And lastly, many people know about medications such as Prozac and Zoloft, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but more than 90% of serotonin is actually produced in the gut. So this helps people understand that the gut and brain are very much a part of understanding this food-mood connection. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated with that whole thing. You call the gut-brain romance in your when, one of your chapters, the first chapter. Um, okay. And yeah, and, and people are coming around to, to acknowledging this, but it just seems so difficult and abstract to get your head around it, but you've been exploring it with real patients in your practice, right? Yes. So, so you know, part of it uh, starts back to my early career days just asking this question because I grew up in a South Asian household and I 
you know, there, there was always this talk of um, holistic health, the, the mind-body connection, um, the fact that nutrition and food was important. And when I began practicing as a very young psychiatrist, I felt that when prescribing very um, important medications that were life-saving but also had some side effects to them, that people needed more tools in their toolkit. So I would begin asking what people were eating, and I would ask, you know, what are you doing for exercise? Because I knew that someone taking a medication needed more of a holistic and integrated approach. And in reality, that's how I've always practiced from the beginning. But as my career developed and I studied more, more things and I did more research, it really evolved into this overlapping sort of nexus of nutrition, mental health, and then also the culinary arts. Well, now, haven't you had a big pushback from the medical profession? Um, you know, people so far have been very welcoming. I'm not saying that everyone is practicing this way or that everyone feels that their patients should be focusing this amount on diet for their mental health. But I've been grateful that my book has been embraced and that um, more people than not are supporting the fact that at the very least, uh, patients, clients, anyone who is working to feel better should actually also be eating healthier. Well, you know, I I see a lot of docs at my gym, uh, and um, and yeah, but they they know so little about nutrition. <laughs> I'm really kind of amazed. Right. Um, you know, I think that um, that's absolutely true, and 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 doctors. As doctors, we don't learn enough about nutrition in medical school. So it's very hard, actually, to have that conversation. Um, and, and most often they might refer to a nutritionist to speak to their patients. So, th- so it, there's that gap. There is that, that gap uh, for, for most physicians, um, I should say. Yeah. Well, now, I found your explanation uh, on this chapter called the um, second called Why Small Things Matter. I thought that pulled together a lot of information for me. Could you explain what you say in that uh, section? Um, you know, I think that uh, it, it's, it's, it, I think it's really about understanding things that I call the pillars of nutritional psychiatry. People assume that when someone tells them to eat a leafy green salad or eat the colors of the rainbow, um, that, you know, simple things around food, that these are, um, you know, just just ordinary, that they, 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 they're not going to make a difference. But it turns out there's a lot of actual uh, research behind it. For example, the greener the better is one of the pillars of nutritional psychiatry. And I, the reason I say that is because leafy greens contain folate, and folate is a key nutrient for brain health. Low folate levels associated with depression and uh, even a loss of brain cells in, in certain studies. So it, it, eating a leafy green salad is not as simple as, as what, what someone might think. The next one is the color of the rainbow. The different colors of fruit and vegetables are uh, extremely rich in antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. These are incredibly important for the source of fiber to your gut microbes, which thrive when they receive food, and a biodiversity, which means the different, different types of these fruit and vegetables that you're eating. So again, adding color to your food, adding color to your plate, 
is very important because of the phytochemicals that are that are contained there. And then, you know, understanding um, that the, the simple things that we might, the, the small things that you might, might think are no big deal and think, well, you know, I'm, I'm having a large cup of coffee and I'm only having one a day. Well, you know, a large 20-ounce cup of coffee, if you're not putting in the right ingredients, could have more than a quarter cup of cream and eight teaspoons of sugar. So those small things, understanding where you have empty calories in your diet, understanding that processed, ultra-processed and junk foods have preservatives, colorants, dyes, a ton of sodium and added sugar that are not helping you really do count. And, and, and understanding all of this and putting it together becomes quite important for our mental health. Well, you know, we interviewed um, a, a woman um, who was uh, born in India and married in India and, uh, her, and then emigrated to uh, California. And um, uh, her husband had severe diabetes. She said that India is the diabetes capital of the world, really. But she took all the traditional Indian foods, she said, and uh, she uh, changed them in ways uh, to uh, um, to lower the, the bad stuff that influences the diabetes and got his health improved to the point where he didn't even have to take insulin every day. Do you believe that's possible? Uh, I think that what we are understanding more and more is that uh, in terms of lifestyle changes and lifestyle measures, that nutrition is an incredibly important lifestyle factor, even in improving type 2 diabetes and other conditions. So I really feel that if we made the the best efforts to improve how we're eating, we can actually reverse some some conditions uh, or at least, you know, lower the incidence, fend off these conditions uh, just, just by making very consistent, um, ongoing efforts to be eating a healthier diet. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a woman uh, named uh, Patricia Rain, but she was also known uh, for her um, website and her research into vanilla. She's known as the vanilla queen. Uh, she got a very aggressive form of breast cancer. And uh, she essentially said goodbye to all of us. And because uh, it was, yeah. And then um, she started researching the effect of a diet on cancer recovery. And she's still going today. And, and this was Amazing. probably yeah. 10 years ago. That's amazing. You know, I, I think there are several things. One is mindset, the, the power of a uh, your belief system, um, and also the um, the fact that you you know do the research and you follow something that you not only believe in, but that has potential health benefits. I, I think there's a, there are many things that we can try um, that are not necessarily just prescriptive and in a doctor's office. Mm-hmm. And you know, I commend people who are who are um, fighting the good fight, as I say. Right. Um, you have um, a, a section. I mean, a, yeah, section um, called "How to Use This Book" because that's something that kind of um, right away you realize there's so much information in, in this book. I mean, you're not going to sit and just read it through all the way. Page after page, but um, 
how do you suggest that this book be used? How did you write it um, as a way to to as how to be used? I mean, what 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 do you want your readers to do? Absolutely, I want I want readers to use it as a guide for their friends, their family, their work colleagues, the people that they know as well as themselves. It's a guide because you could look at the book and say maybe chapter three is something you need, but maybe there's someone you know that needs some help from the foods in chapter nine. So it's really meant to be a compendium of information to improve your mental fitness. You actually don't have to have a diagnosis. You can actually be feeling a little blue, maybe a little anxious and stressed. Um, A lot of people are talking about, you know, even though the pandemic is, we're coming through this now, um, people are still not feeling great. They still are worried about different things. So I think that by using this book as a guide, by starting to use the principles of nutritional psychiatry to eat our way to our better mental health, we will start to feel emotionally better over time. Um, and and it, it, that is how I intended the book. And, and the list in each chapter are meant to be something that people can follow. And if you're feeling that you have uh, uh, not, you know, that you're struggling with your mood, then there, there are foods that you should be eating and foods you should be avoiding. And then matched with that are the recipes in Chapter 11. Right, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, can you walk us through what would be a, a, a good example? Um, I guess everybody's battling anxiety right now. Do you have an anxiety chapter? Yes. Yes. I'm trying to find it. I thought I saw it yes. before. Yes. 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 Walk us through. Um, I mean, do you, the way your approach is, if you have. Um, mild anxiety, and the patient would follow your guidance for diet. Uh, if, if it's really extreme, uh, you would expect them to seek medical help and also follow the diet. Is that correct? Absolutely. I always feel that a person who is struggling with, say, some mental health symptoms, even if they're not carrying a full diagnosis, so maybe they're feeling a little bit stressed and anxious. They can always start by using dietary changes to how they're eating, but they should also always consult with their doctor to make sure they're on the correct path and that the doctor may or may not feel, say, they need a medication or perhaps they need a form of talking therapy becomes important too. In my practice, there are individuals who, after being assessed by me, may not need a medication and then work with me only on nutritional psychiatry principles and have begun to feel better and have continued to feel better by following this. So, so yes, both, both of those are true. Well, now, I mean, there, there's a lot of talk about pre- and probiotics. What's your take on these? Your prebiotic uh, foods are quite easy to include in our diet because they include the allium family, garlics, leeks, onions, bananas, oats, and other things like that. So just including this list in my book of these foods, including these in your everyday foods becomes important. And they are really helpful to those gut microbes. When the gut bacteria, which is those microbes that live in the gut, are eating well, um, they thrive and they work to our best health. So I like to say a happy gut 
is a happy mood. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, and then probiotics, you know, the, the supplementation with probiotics may or may not be necessary because you can also eat a lot of fermented foods, uh, dairy or non-dairy yogurt, uh, you, know, you know, fermented foods like tofu, miso, kefir, kombucha, uh, a pickle, sauerkraut, things like that of which there are many, that bring back the uh, live active cultures back to your gut. So, uh, you know, if you're taking a probiotic and you, you're feeling better taking it, good for you. But, you know, you can also get much of this through how you're eating. Right. Um, is there, in your mind, um, I find a lot of these things that, that you recommend things that I crave, I mean, is there a relationship brain and gut-wise that, like, I tend to eat uh, fermented foods frequently. I mean, I probably have pickles every day. That's great, yeah. And and I have no, no, I really have no sweet tooth whatsoever. That's impressive. I mean, I think that what what I can say that happens with my patients is when they are, trying to cut back on sugary foods, for example, by including healthy whole foods, by including the, the sweetness of a piece of fruit, by including a piece of extra dark chocolate, by including fermented foods, which is, which is helping to take care of their gut, um, they start to feel better and they notice less cravings and that they are not uh, chasing after uh, foods that they would ordinarily be wanting to eat because they're feeling satiated, they're eating, um, eating filling foods that are healthy, that are breaking down very slowly and uh, in their body in the sense that uh, the more complex carbohydrates are slower to digest so you feel fuller for longer. And, uh, you know, they, they start to feel better. So I would, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you've done that and, and you've noticed a change. But I'm wondering where it starts. I mean, is it, uh, this is one of those chicken and egg things. I mean, mm-hmm. is it is it I favor these foods because of my um, my bio, uh, uh, what do you call it the gut biome? I mean, or have I? I'm not treating myself. I mean, it's a natural um, affinity for these foods. Is that some kind of a secret signal from my gut biome? I don't know if, it, if, it, if we can quite break it down, you know, to the chicken and the egg sort of situation. I feel that what I'm hearing you say is you naturally like these foods, yeah. and you, and I'm sure that over time, if you've just naturally eaten them, you've you've been eating, I would guess, a healthier diet, and that has led to your not having, you know, cravings that say the next person may be having. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, as to what well, I was raised on the med- I was raised on the Mediterranean diet, so that's probably right. part of the answer. That, absolutely, you, you're probably raised on just eating a naturally uh, more whole food, healthy diet. You know, un- unlike the standard American diet, which more people eat in this country than not, and as you know, that can be problematic. Yeah. Now, what, just run through some of the physiological conditions, uh, or not physiological, the uh, psychiatric conditions, or what, what do you call these, like anxiety, um, depression, and what, what conditions uh, do you address in this book? 
So we uh, so I address um, most of the major sort of uh, groups in mental mental health, uh, which include uh, you know anxiety, depression, OCD, ADHD, PTSD, um, you know bipolar disorder, and more. So I, I sort of categorize uh, these based on the research uh, that I did and help people understand for the different conditions and different symptoms how they can eat better, the foods to be cautious about. For example, with anxiety, people may, you mentioned sugar, and people may be thinking to cut back on sugar but and, and may go to a, a, a diet soda, but it turns out that artificial sweetener is worse than anxiety. So it's knowing those nuances that becomes important in each condition. Now, you, you, you have Chapter 10 here, too, which I'm sure everybody's going to turn to right away. Uh, libido, oxytocin, fenugreek, and the science of aphrodisiacs. Well, there's been so much myth surrounding aphrodisiacs and food for so long. <laughs> Talk to our listeners a little bit about this chapter. Absolutely. So, you know, it turns out that sometimes individuals are struggling a little bit with their mental well-being. They also struggle either through side effects of medications or uh, because of, say, symptoms of depression can also make you just feel uh, uh, less, you know, uh, less in the mood or just uh, have a lowered libido. So there are foods that actually boost oxytocin. Extra dark natural chocolate is a favorite magnesium-rich foods, um, which can be found in, you know, you find, it, find them in different vegetables, you find them in eggs, certain, certain grains, certain meats. And then things like, you know, red wine, a glass a day, um, you know, in some studies has actually been shown to help that. But nuts, like pistachios, almonds, and walnuts um, are associated with improvement in libido. Um, also foods like apples, uh, avocados, and a couple of herbs uh, like like fenugreek and saffron. So you know, it's interesting that um, that when you know or have this information, you can then act on it and you can start to include those foods uh, if you're feeling if you're feeling you know like you 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 want to improve uh, your libido or you're struggling a little bit. It's it's something that you can try and it's natural because it's eating food, you know, so it's, it's really just improving uh, things in your diet and adding them in. Well, now your trained chef comes in here towards the back of the book, um, starting with, um, I think it's a beautiful metaphor for your scientific and culinary combined background, is stocking your pantry with brain foods. <laughs> Absolutely, it's it's one of the things I believe in, and uh, I also feel that you know when you have those those foods on hand, you're less likely to go to the cookies in the cabinet or the you know the ice cream or whatever it is. Uh-huh. You, you just by having those healthy whole foods, you you naturally start to gravitate to them too. Yeah, so listeners, you can find out what you should put in your pantry for feeding your brain, and then yes. uh, you also go on. Um, to uh, setting up your kitchen like a chef. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many you know, psychiatrists I, I, got into this? You know, it's funny, <laughs> it's funny because I uh, came from this very large South Asian family, and I didn't cook early on. I, um, 
I, there were always cooks in the kitchen, grand, you know, my grandmother, my, my aunt, my cousins, my mom. And so I would hang around the kitchen, but I didn't cook. So when I did learn to cook later on, um, I, I really know, I sort of know what it's like to start, start without, with, the, with knowledge that you've been around food and watched other people cooking. And I really wanted to walk people through how I started and uh, to give them some tips. Because sometimes the kitchen can feel intimidating, and uh, I know that feeling. Right. And then, of course, you have recipes that uh, sound really yummy, actually. <laughs> They're chef-y health foods. <laughs> exactly. And they're meant to be simple, you know, that you, you, can, you, can, easily, um, you can easily try them out. Uh, it's not about trying to make souffle. It's really just about getting some healthy whole foods that are delicious on the table that you will enjoy. Yeah, I like your sardine snack. You see, that's another one of those things that I think underrated people don't eat enough sardines and things like that. Anchovies, you know, people have strong feelings about. Right, right. Well, I mean, this is a whole new world that you've opened up. And um, I mean, I really hope that that you sell a lot of these books because I think it's, it's, I'm I'm a firm, firm believer in this, um, the gut biome. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, and and I think that I just read who was it now? It was um, a California, was Stanford. Um, they just did a, a study uh, with humans. I mean, not uh, not animals and not uh, petri mm-hmm. dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, testing the uh, effectiveness of um, fiber uh, as opposed to um, fermented foods. And uh, it was a very complicated study, uh, really about uh, measuring um, the balance in the bio, uh, the uh, gut biome. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that the, the fermented foods actually, um, if you start fermented foods, like you notice rapidly a, uh, an increase in diversity in, in your biome. Um, and and it's much slower in the in the other, but they think maybe it's just a matter of timing, and it's probably good to do both fiber and um, fermentation in the long run. But there, I mean, what I'm just suggesting by this is that it's an ongoing, expanding um, area of, of research and interest, mm-hmm. and I think you're at the forefront of all that, uh, Dr. Nando. So again, listeners, it's called. This is your brain on food, and the best way of dealing with this is to actually buy the book, and you look up whatever you're concerned with, and uh, and see the kinds of foods that you need for a, a a healthy brain and gut as well. And you have all kinds of ancillary information in here, and 10 million footnotes, doctor. <laughs> Thorough research. Well, I, I really am, I was thrilled a bit to see that somebody's researching all this, and, and I really believe in it. So thank you for talking to us about it. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure, and you had fun. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. 
Well, it, it turns out that uh, the farms in southwestern Pennsylvania have produced some really creative, uh, important, and impactful people. We already introduced you to Peter Sorgel of Sorgel Farms, uh, who now is the winemaker at Linmar Estate. Um, oh, and we, we interviewed him there, too. We interviewed him, and we it's in a program. Yep. And now we're going to meet another one, Maria Kretschmann, who is a creative artist, I mean, an artist in her own right, um, who was raised on, on the, the, the Kretschmann farm and, and has gone on to start a business with the um, well-established, long-running apple orchards on her family's farm to make a distinctive hard cider called After the Fall Cider, clever name. Yep. So, um, no, no, nothing, then, about, nothing about the gen, nothing about what went on in Genesis. <laughs> no. Anyhow, uh, let's listen to Maria talk to us about um, her life, her interests, her passions, and her cider. Well, Maria Crutchman, you are um, a singular person, uh, but. I'll tell you, your your cider, your hard cider, is such an incredibly high-quality product. You'd think that you'd done this, nothing but this, your whole entire life. Yeah. Tell us your story. Tell us your story, because I was attracted to it immediately, um, that you combined your farm background um, with your um, art your making background to produce this high-quality cider called After the Fall, which is, of course, obvious, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I'm Maria, and, yeah, so I, um, I'm i an artist, um, for, first and foremost. You know, I keep that in the front of my brain because it informs everything that I do in my life. Yeah, um, what kind of artist do you do? Uh, so I, let's see, I, I don't limit myself to material, just, you know, it's very indicative of my personality, um, that I'm limitless in so many ways. Um, I, I entered the art world, you know, through ceramics. I do have a degree in, um, fine arts and ceramics and sculpture. Um, but I was really interested in metalworking when I was in school, but in a very sort of purist school. So I sort of had to explore yeah, well, that I was after a, school. I was a goldsmith. Oh, wow. Yeah, I do actually a lot of metal casting here in Pittsburgh now. Um, that's been sort of my focus in the last, you know, five You've been or six cast, years. Who I, casts? You have your own casting stuff? So I'm actually involved with a group of folks um, down at Kerry Furnace in Rankin. Oh, um, right. There you go. Okay. And, you know, Kerry Furnace was one of the – it was the blast furnace, right. you know, during World War II produced all the steel for that. So – you know, um, some individuals bought the site, you know, I think 15 years ago or so, don't quote me on that, um, and they made it a National Historic Landmark. And then over the last 15 years, they've been doing some sort of, you know, I won't call it renovation because you can't renovate a site like that. But they've, you know, taken some precautions, we'll put it that way, and started some programs. And one of the programs is, you know, the Rivers of Steel Arts Program. And within that program, there's a metal arts. Um, program which I'm I'm involved with uh, a group of artists and we do we host public pours and we do workshops for the public so if you wanted to come and 
you know, cast something in metal, you can come and work with us and we, you know, show you how to make your molds. And then, you know, you work with us for the week and then pour metal at the end of the week with us. That's that's great. All all of this sounds a lot like a left turn when it comes to making cider. Can you you explain that particular move? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, except that, like, so many of our, I mean, we do, we cast iron, which, you know, is an interesting material. At first, I thought, like, wow, that's so unsustainable. But then the more I thought about it, and one of my peers um, said to me, you know, hey, it's actually the most sustainable because we're literally taking, you know, we're taking other people's garbage and we're melting it down. We're taking radiators and brake pads and things that, are just junk and melting it down and making art out of it. So in that way, I do actually see a connection, you know, in this, the sustainability, if you will, not to say that the toxins that come off of the furnace aren't noxious for all of us, humans and wildlife and the earth, but at the scale that we're doing, it is so small. And I think, you know, what you gain from the art is more than the harm in that case. And, you know, art making is not always the most sustainable practice. So I sort of was drawn to that as well, you know, just this, like, ultimate reuse, you know, literally melting the stuff down and making something right. entirely new out of it. Mm-hmm. And as far as it correlating, you know, to the orchard at all, I have done, you know, I have cast tractor parts for my dad and things like that. So there is some, like, practical application of the metal casting, of course, you know, within the farming world, Um outside of the art practice. Um, yeah, I just want to throw that in, now, too. <laughs> say something about your family, your upbringing, and your farm that you grew up on. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm currently I mean, it's a name, Crutchman, that everybody in this area knows. Everybody knows this. Yeah, my dad was, I think, probably one of the first organic growers in the region. Um, him and my mom bought the property in the late 70s, um, really with the intention of growing vegetables and fruit and, you know, feeding people. Um, and so for, I don't know, 30 years, they had a had a vegetable CSA, which is a... Yeah, they're not doing know, that, a, are they, right now? I mean, did they close my out dad, yeah, he did. This is his first year in retirement, and I'm not sure that farmers ever retire. But now yeah, he's just I working. Know. He's working for me for free now, so that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always say, you know, I um, my great uncle had a dairy farm, and uh, he never retired. You know, he never had right. a life actually, but he also never retired. Right. He just died. You know, I mean, that but, was it. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> With the farm still going, him. you know. Right. My mom always says, well, get a hobby. And he's like, well, this is my hobby. Farming is my hobby. It's my work and it's my hobby, you know. But I think that that's just part of being, uh, well, it's certainly part of being a farmer because you invest so much time into that land, you know, and your value is no, you know, your value kind of maybe never was monetary because, there's not a ton of money in farming, so your value goes into, like, the soil health and the bigger, you know, the bigger issues, you know, how to conserve resources and how then to share resources. Once you have that soil health and you have the fertile soil that can grow very abundantly, um, then what do you do with that? How do you share that with the community? How do you make that accessible? Um, so, 
uh, I sort of went on a tangent. I forget why I started telling you <laughs> talking about that. Let's, let's, no, that's great. It's I mean, part of being let's, passionate. Let's yeah, it's just part on, of being let's, passionate. Let's put you back on track. And yes. we, we live in Pennsylvania like, like you do, but I don't, I don't think Peter and Ann realized that there was a big product called apples in Pennsylvania. We, we associate apples, I guess, with, with the, the far northwest, but also around the Great Lakes, around Buffalo. And so there are a variety of places, but we didn't know it was endemic, if you like, to Pennsylvania. Has it been that way for a long time? Sure. I think that people in this region, it's interesting that you asked me that question because as I was making little notes, that was something that I had put in my notes. Um, you know, I think that people don't associate this region for that because a lot of the, I think a lot of the trees, a lot of the orchards, you know, have been cut down around here, you know, for housing development and other, really? you know, development. Um, you know, and it's something that I actively do is sort of seek out, you know, trees to cultivate, um, you know, to add in, I would say they're wild trees, but they're no longer wild because, you know, I take the cuttings and then I, you know, graft them and add them to my orchard. Um, but I have found, you know, many varieties that I don't know what the varieties are. And I have noticed, you know, that they're much more adapted to this climate. You know, when I'm, I try to grow, you know, the English, the French varieties, you know, they're not quite as happy as these ones are, which tells you a little bit about, you know, how we should really be growing apples. Um, well, do you know about the Lost Apple Project out of the Pacific Northwest? I think specifically out of uh, Seattle or Portland. We interviewed no, a, a guy me. who's running that, the Lost Apple Project. He, he He's researching, a group, I guess he's a small group, that researches all these different varieties of apples and tries to bring them back. And, I mean, he's identified... hundreds if not thousands of lost apple species i believe it yeah i love it wasn't he retired military sweetheart i think so yeah i think it was something like that i mean did did something entirely different and then Mm -hmm. and and then got big time into apples and uh, discovered all kinds of different varieties right well apples Apples are completely fascinating. They're so adaptable. And, you know, I mean, we wouldn't know apples as we know apples at the grocery store if it wasn't for humans. You know, wild apples are not at all what, you know, what oh, we see true. in the market. Mm-hmm. Now, here it is. His name, if you, if you want to connect with him, his name is um, David... Um, B E N S C O T E R. Um, is that the right one? He's he's in uh, Portland, I think. Well, here you, you can go on Wikipedia and look up Lost Apple Project. Great, yeah, I would definitely look into that. I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, he's fascinating, really. So I don't remember the whole now, what, story, but now what came what came first, the apples or the cider? <laughs> oh, the apples for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you're using 
you're mm-hmm. using orchards that your your father planted, right? Correct. So most of the, I mean, also I think it's okay. So back to your point, Peter, about you know not knowing that you know apples really even grow in this region. It's not easy. Um, it is not easy to grow apples in western Pennsylvania in the United States. Um, it, we have a very high fungal load here. There's a lot of very, you know, you know, it's really humid here, and that's just like breeding ground for, you know, fungus, um, which Thank impacts, you. you know, the, the the leaves, and then that impacts, you know, the photosynthesis of the tree and all parts of it. Um, and so, you know... I think my dad's vision was always to prove that wrong with the orchard and grow organic apples um, in an, in a region that, you know, wasn't really known for that. Um, but I think he was successful in that in that in in two ways, one of which choosing, you know, disease-resistant varieties and rootstocks to match. Um, so giving the tree itself, like, the highest immunity to all of those, you know, pathogens. Um, and then the second part of that is educating the general public that, you know, an organic apple is going to have the utmost flavor, but it might not be the prettiest thing on the planet. And, right. you know, that's, yeah, the, the, that's the, the you know, label, kind of just part of it. The, mm-hmm. label, uh, the labels on your cider bottles are quite evocative because they <laughs> include a, a lady who I'm presuming you drew and she's reaching up well beyond her height and picking an apple, and we're wondering if her first name is Eve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, negative. It's Maria. <laughs> but, um, no, and I didn't do the design. My lovely friend Annalie Lanier did it, and um, she's just brilliant. I was sort of anti any any tree or apple i feel like every cider company has like an apple or a tree and i wanted something that was more like me you know i'm you know i'm a i'm a little punny and i you know can be clumsy and you know i like the name for the multiple meanings um of after the fall and she just captured that perfectly i was like what if we put what if we put a female figure on a ladder about to fall and she just nailed it. <laughs> She's so brilliant. Well, how, I mean, Chris, you grew up with apples, but why all of a sudden did you decide to direct your energies and your creativity into hard cider? Well, I have been looking for something that, you know, captured my my interest in a serious way on the farm. And I had, you know, I've been back on the land for five years now and I really have loved just being in the orchard it's like its own ecosystem and I love climbing the trees and just connecting in the orchard just feels very natural for me and um, I started going to this organic apple growers meetup in western Massachusetts uh, every winter and a lot of the folks there I mean they're all organic apple growers um, and a lot of them also make cider, and it was sort of like a you know a late night playing cards when one of the one of the people were like, "Why aren't you making cider, Maria? Like you have all these apples, 
you you should do this. And, you know, the back back story of my life is that I was a bartender for, you know, 15 years um, in Philadelphia, and I worked in the service industry for most of my life, you know, my first yeah, We're in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. We, we lived there, and actually oh, okay. I had a restaurant in Philadelphia years ago. Oh, wow. Um, I worked at... I worked at a spot at 21st and South for like seven years. I worked a bunch of places in Philly. <laughs> um, my but, restaurant was at 2nd and South. Oh, nice. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I have my cider at a at a spot right at uh, right in Head House, a place called Bloomsday Cafe, which is right there in Head House. There's so many good restaurants go, right now. there. No, you, you also go on. This is handwritten. Your cider is wild fermented, and then there's then this is gold rush, and the word that begins with D is, is Gabinet. Are they are they the breeds of apples that are in this cider? That's correct. Um, I try to stay. I try to just let the fruit shine. You know, I feel like a lot of cider out on the market um, has. Maybe just is less apple focused, you know, and because I grow fruit, I want to just stay true to that. So, you know, I always list all the varieties that are included in the cider. Um, so how many different also, varieties? I got an email uh, from you about a, a CSA, an apple CSA. Yes. Tell, tell us about that. Well, that's going to be primarily the table fruit. So, you know, most of the fruit that my my father has grown is table fruit. And some of that I blend in with the cider, you know, for my orchard. I do an orchard blend every year, um, which I think I gave you both a bottle of the 2019. Um, And then the rest of that fruit this year because... Because the vegetable CSA on the farm is no longer... um, I now have all the fruit to figure out what I'm going to do with. Um, okay. So the, um, the apple CSA will be one of those things, along with unison sweet cider. Now, part of the New England scene with the cider, when we've interviewed people, a lot of people there and across into Canada make ice wine. Is that How is that different? Um, well, ice cider, ice cider is like they, you know, I... I believe the process is like they freeze it and then they, you know, they freeze it in these giant coats. And yeah. then basically you take off like, I'm going to use the word cuvee, but I'm not sure that that's the right word to use, but you, you take off the more concentrated juice off of the top. So you have right. a very high, you know, sugar content from that. And then you make your ice cider from that, which will be more of like a cordial if you will, and, oh, really? you know, okay. just really sweet. Like, yeah, much no, yours sweeter. is not. Yours is like fine vintage bubbly. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, hold on, hold on a second. Look. It, say, it says here that this particular variety is still not sparkling. Right. So I gave you two. Um, yes. The orchard blends are always bubbly. And then that I'm experimenting, right, you know, when I launched my business, I, you know, sort of decided I was going to make two flagship products. And that was based on the fruit that I could have the most consistently. 
Um, now, the Orchard Blend is not a consistent product, but what's consistent is that every year I make an Orchard Blend, so it gives me an opportunity to talk to the public about the different varieties, different seasons, what happens with the fruit in the different seasons, and that's just part of my story. Um, and then the other one that I consistently make, one of my flagships, is the Gold Rush and Dabinet. Now, I make a refined version. I don't like that word, refined, because... They're both delicious. But it is. I mean, it really is refined. I mean, this is high-quality stuff. Right, but I make a version that's carbonated that's like one of my flagships. So that bottle that I gave you is a wild fermented version of the Gold Russian Davenat. So it's unfiltered. It's still, it's like, it has, yeah, it's it's so special. Um, I only had 30 bottles of that. Oh, wow. Um, And then, you know, I'm doing these small batches to sort of decide what works and what I want to scale up with next year, you know, doing some, you know, native yeast, doing wild ferments instead of, like, pitching a wine yeast, which is fine. There's nothing wrong. It makes it nice cider if you have nice fruit. Um, But in my opinion, those really nice wild fermented ciders are just to die for, like the one that I gave you. (laughs) Oh, right. Well, that that one's not open yet, but it's... It's going to be it's going to be treated with kid gloves. It's going to, it's going to be considered very special, and we'll think yes. think of you with, we'll think of you with every sip. Yes, please do. Feedback is is welcome. <laughs> well, you you have a a, a limited um, size production. So, uh, what what customer um, do you have in mind as your market? Um, right now, I'm really focused on direct sales. Um, for me, you know, distributor distribution is not an option because I don't have that volume, nor do I want to have a middleman. You know, if I learned anything from watching my father and his business, it's that, you know, the DTC or direct-to-consumer is the way that the farmer makes the most money, the most connections, and those long standing connections, you know, for years and years, people will support you and your business because they know your story and they want your products because they know that it's grown in the most sustainable way, but also that it's grown with love. And that makes a difference to people. Yeah, it sure does. Now, how does someone lay hands on some of your product? So in Pittsburgh, I do two farmer's markets. Um, I do the Squirrel Hill Farmer's Market and the East Liberty Farmer's Market. Oh, yeah. Um, It's right around the corner from where we live. Yeah. We've been here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then my cider is also at two uh, wine shops in Philadelphia at Bloomsday Cafe and then also at a spot called Sally Philadelphia, which is in, like, Graduate Hospital almost over to West Philly. So one on the east side and then one on the west. So what is your website? Do people get information on your website? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my website is afterthefallcider.com. Afterthefallcider.com. Uh, and I guess we should say it's um, alcohol content is about nine, right? Anywhere from seven to nine, yeah. It's pretty okay. pretty. Pretty um, usual. Do you dabble in breeding? I mean, that's really specialized, isn't it? You know, I haven't. I know some folks who do. Um, For me, I'm interested in it, 
but maybe later in life. <laughs> oh, it's so tedious. I mean, from the people we've yeah. interviewed, you know, you spent 20 years eating apples to get the right, right. graft, you know. I mean, right, right, exactly. Every day you you, you taste apples. Just to get exactly. And, and, and I and prefer to, you, yeah. Now you can also go the opposite way and make calvados. Mm. Yeah, you what I've been doing, that? and mm-hmm. go ahead. Go ahead. I'm listening to you. Oh, what, oh, what yeah. I was going to say is that what um, I prefer to go the route of top working, which is like a method that you can, you know, use the old growth and put new growth on top. You know, so basically you take the tree and you cut it two thirds of the way down. And you can splice in new varieties onto the top. You know, apples take a long time to produce depending on the rootstock. It could be five to ten years. But this, in this, with this method, because the roots are already established of the tree, Interesting. Um, all of the energy goes upwards. And so it's a way you can get fruit within two to three years and have a whole new tree and sort of use, like, non-producing varieties like we plant, you know, in the States. There's a lot of, like, red delicious and just you know just these apples that aren't very good period not even for eating and so like those kinds of varieties or just varieties that didn't produce well in the orchard so i'm taking those trees and i'm top working them putting cider varieties and varieties that are more adapted to our climate you know and expanding the orchard that way versus going the way where you know i might be dead before I see any fruit from anything. <laughs> I I eat breeding. I was just I was just suggesting that you that you buy a buy a buy or make a still and and make a liqueur. Oh, oh wow! You know what I what my my project for this year since I think I'm going to have this bumper crop of apples is I really am dying to make a pomo. Um, so oh, that no. is a yeah. You know what a pomo is. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, I found a distillery in Philly who's willing to make the apple brandy really? with my with my cider. So that's really exciting. They need a lot of volume, and I, you know, wasn't sure I would have that, and now I see my crop, and I think I probably will have that, no problem. So, you oh, know, that's, that's obviously an age, an age product, but um, I'm not allowed to do the distilling in the state of Pennsylvania with my license, um, but I'm allowed to use an apple brandy that is produced in the state of Pennsylvania for my product and sell it. So, you know, I mean, the, the laws in Pennsylvania are so convoluted. I mean, you have to be really brave to approach anything like this in Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's really besides, frustrating at times. Besides, besides who's going who's gonna to find you? Oh, they watch you. They do? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I, you know, I've gotten you know, little notes that are like, oh, we see on your social media that you started selling this product. I mean, they're watching. (laughs) Somebody's watching. So, yeah, I guess it would be. Well, we hope they they keep watching. And we'll keep watching you too. And uh, we wish you every success with this really unique after after the fall. After the fall cider, listeners, I mean, it really is, as I said, a quality product. And uh, um, did you have in mind what you were looking for since you're so experienced with apples and 
outsiders and bartending? I mean, did, did you know what you were going after, and are you actually achieving that? You mean in life? Uh, in life? Um, yes. Um, I mean, all I know is the things that I that I feel strongly about, you know, and I mm-hmm. feel strongly about the environment. I feel strongly about, you know, I know that I'm the type of person that can't do something that I don't enjoy, and I really enjoy this, and so it's easy. Um, and it's the same with art making, you know, and so did I know that I was always going to, you know, do this? Hell no. I didn't know at all. <laughs> you know, it just presented itself, you know, and I'm the type of person who's really good at doing what's right in front of me. And I just get obsessed with things and I figure it out. And that's what I did with cider. And it is a perfect combination of, you know, I feel like it encapsulates me. It's like this agrarian side of me, but then also the social side and then the, you know, and then the food, you know, and then the more refined food, you know, service side. Um, So it's, it's sort of the perfect trifecta for me. Well, right. I, I wish you tons of success, and I expect Thank that uh, so we'll be hearing more and more from you. And Thank you any, so much, any news you want to get out, let us know. That sounds wonderful. I appreciate you both. Okay, and again, it's after the fall cider, and uh, um, it's that's the website after the fall cider dot com. That's another wrap, as I say every week. And uh, those of you listening, please join us again next week, same time, same station. And until then, bye-bye.